Hey everybody, Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into our podcast at Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Would you be interested? Well, let me tell you a little bit about it. We don't have lasers. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage, but we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the whole world. We sing psalms and hymns, and we preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We love Jesus, and we're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. So would you be interested in coming to a church like that? If so, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. And feel free to visit our website, gospelfellowshippca.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. And now for today's message. 13 through 30, Mark chapter 3, 13 to 30. When you find that, let's stand up together as the believing church. We stand uh, just to merely recognize the authority, the infallibility, the inspiration of God's word to receive it as such, to ask his help in believing and obeying it. Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 30. As we read, be mindful that much of the sermon will be drawn from verses 22 to 30. That will be the primary text for the preaching today. But we hear verses 13 to 30 together. Let's listen now to the word of God. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanjerus, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind, verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand, and if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatsoever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help me now to declare your word, to be faithful and accurate in all that I say, and helpful and edifying to to your church, this church. Lord, and bless the people who you love. Give them ears to hear, hearts to receive and hands and feet willing to walk and to obey in the truth and in the light. And we pray these things in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. 
One of the most important pieces of preaching advice I ever received was from an elder, a ruling elder of mine who was a good friend and I could trust him. And one day I had uh, preached what I thought was a pretty good sermon. And he came up to me after church and uh, he said, hey, why don't you quit being such a wimp up there? And I said, what are you, what are you talking about? I thought that was a pretty, pretty decent sermon. I got to the gospel and... You know, I preached on repentance, and he said, yeah, well, that's good. It was good, but you skipped the hardest verse in that passage, and we know you did it. And I was thinking to myself, well, okay, <laughs> I guess. I didn't think I was being a coward up there preaching, but he said, yeah, you, you preached that passage faithfully enough, but you stopped right before the hardest verse in this passage, and everybody knows it, and if you do it again, you're gonna be a coward. So I was like, whoa. <laughs> well, it just so happened that that week I was preaching on 1 Timothy 2, which has the passage in there. Uh, it's a difficult passage about uh, women ought to be silent in the church and, and to listen. And so I was thinking to myself, now that's just not a verse that I wanna deal with today. Um, <laughs> I'm not in the mood for that. I don't know if, that, if, the, if the church is in the mood for that. I, and so I worked all around it. I worked around that verse, and uh, I got called. I got called on the carpet for it. He, he said I was acting like a coward. And at first I was a little bit offended by that. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know what, he's right. You can't just skip over the hard parts. You can't just be in the mood to preach one thing or to skip over something else. If you're the preacher, you have to preach what's there in the text. And then he said to me, you need to remember this. He said, first of all, when you skip the hard parts, A, everybody's going to know that you did it on purpose. And B, not only that, but when you actually take on the hardest verses, those sermons end up being far more interesting and memorable anyways. And that's exactly right. And so I've remembered that uh, for a long time now, that whenever I come to a passage that has a particular hard part or a difficult verse, I don't work around it anymore. I try to run right into it. I try to take on that verse and I run smack into it and I do my best and I try to be faithful to what's ever in the text. And he's right. When you tackle the hardest verses in the passage, those sermons are more interesting than if you carefully work around it, aren't they? Yeah. And so today, in our text, we have one of those more difficult verses, one of those harder verses to talk about, and it's this verse right here, if you still have your Bibles open, it's this verse 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. If I preached through this chapter and skipped that verse, I would be being a coward, and I don't want to do that anymore, so I'm not going to do it. In fact, I'm going to run right after this verse, I'm going to go right to it, even though this is going to be a bit of a hard sermon, I'm going to tell you a couple of reasons why this is going to be a hard sermon. First of all, it's hard theologically because this phrase, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, is not necessarily defined in so many words. We're left to do some homework to figure out what this means. What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Well, we're going to have to work on that. That's going to be one of our challenges. Uh, not only that, but that's going to have to cause me, it's going to force me to preach in a tone that is commensurate with the seriousness of the verse in the passage. I don't want to be flippant. While there's a deadly serious, blood serious, eternally serious verse right before me in this passage. So tone-wise, I've got to come at this 
with all of the gravity and the seriousness that this verse demands. And the, the other problem is simply this. I don't want to add guilt, fear, or anxiety to anybody that is already standing firmly in Christ and has their sins forgiven. The last thing I would want to do is make you walk out of here today feeling more guilty when you're already standing safely and secure in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I have to be very careful with this passage. And what I want to do today is I want to approach this from three angles. Uh, You'll appreciate the alliteration here. I tried hard to do this for you. I hope you appreciate this. I've got a lot of C words for you coming in three main points, and here they are. I'm going to give them to you. Each one is going to correspond to one of the verses in this text, 28, 29, and 30. And so we're going to first of all talk about Jesus' word of compassionate comfort. Jesus does give a word of compassionate comfort, and it is in verse 28. Secondly, we're going to move on then to a very critical caution that he gives to his hearers, a critical caution caution, and I'm going to try to caution us with as much sincerity and gravity as this passage deserves. And then third, and this is the darkest and and hardest part of the passage, a callous conclusion in verse 30 of the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So the context here historically is that Jesus has just done some healings and some deliverances. He's just cast out some demons from those who were oppressed by the enemy. But look at this up here in verse 22. It says, The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. He casts out demons. Now this looks like an official delegation coming from Jerusalem to examine, to critique, and to discern what's happening here in the ministry of Jesus. Because as you recall from last week, if you look all the way up to chapter 3, verse 6, it ended on a very ominous note. You remember this. The Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him, right? So they go, they have this meeting, they're going to figure out how to destroy Jesus, and now we have this delegation, this official delegation that's come down from Jerusalem. These are the big guys, these are the big wigs, these are the suits we might say, come in to examine the ministry of Jesus, and they are asserting that Jesus has demonic power to cast out demonic forces, and Jesus simply replies to this with a couple of very short parables. He gives them a parable of a kingdom, a house, and a strong man. All of them have exactly the same point. How ridiculous would it be for Satan to cast himself out? That's his main point. Why would Satan be against Satan? That literally makes no sense. And then what Jesus does is he brings it back to them. You have a charge against me? You got a critique for me? I've got a critique for you. Be careful that you do not blaspheme the Holy Spirit and so ascribing the works of Christ to the evil one. So let's look at these three points here and let's do what we can with this text and not avoid any of its difficulties. First of all, let's look at verse 28, a compassionate comfort that Jesus gives to them. Verse 28, if that's all we had, this would not be a hard text. This would be a beautiful text. It would be a gracious text, a merciful text. Let's listen to it again. He says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemes, blasphemies they utter. Now, if we paused right there, if that was it, then all this would be is an offer and invitation to forgiveness. Because Jesus says all sins and blasphemies will be forgiven. Now, let's be careful with even that, though, because Jesus is not a universalist. He's not saying that every single sin of every single person that's ever been committed is going to be forgiven. Okay? Jesus clearly says in other, place, other places that some will be lost to hell. Some will be damned. Some will be lost. 
But what he's saying here by this phrase, all sins will be forgiven, is something more like this. All classifications of sins are forgivable. All kinds of sins, all degrees of sins, all numbers of sins. So when we start to think about it here, all sins really stands for all types of sins. Sins of the mind, sins of the heart, sins of the lips, sins of the fist. All of those, Jesus says, are forgivable, so come to me and receive my grace. All sins of degree can be forgiven by my graciousness. Think about this. Some sins are worse than others, right? I mean, in one sense, no. In one sense, any sin, even the smallest one, has the potency to send us to hell. So on that, on that regard, they're all on an even plane. All sins are equal in that sense. But in another sense, sense, there are obviously sins that are worse than others because of their consequences. For instance, if you merely think an evil thought about somebody, that's a sin, clearly. But if you carry out that thought and you go and you punch that person, well, obviously, that sin is worse by way of degree, and we can think of that in almost every category, whether it's lust, lust is worse when it's carried out in adultery, uh, any form of sin, you can certainly make it worse by degree, but Jesus is saying here something really compassionate and very comforting to me, that even all degrees of sins can be forgiven. Okay. Even any number of sins can be forgiven. Let's say you get drunk once, all right? That can be forgiven. You get drunk seven times. That can be forgiven. 77 times. Yes, that too. And so what Jesus is saying here is extraordinarily gracious and comforting to repentant sinners, key phrase. It is comforting to repentant sinners because all of our sin, all of our mess, all of our guilt, all of our shame, whether it's severe, whether it's, whether it's heinous, whether it's aggravated, we can come to him and we can receive his grace. And that's exactly what the Bible is filled with, is stories of sinners like us that have come to a great and merciful God and been changed, renewed, and cleansed. Amen? You can think of David from the Old Testament, that voyeur who committed adultery and then murder. All right, you can go to Noah, Noah? Yeah, Noah, that Noah. The Noah of the ark? Yes, that Noah of the ark got drunk and stupid after he got off the ark. You remember that passage? It's not in the children's Bibles, but it's there in the real Bible. You want to talk about Manasseh from 2 Chronicles? You remember that king, that wicked pagan king who burned his children to sacrifice to a pagan god? Can that be forgiven? According to Jesus, yes. And according to 2 Chronicles, also because Manasseh repented of his sins and was forgiven. And even when we look post-biblical, we find stories of men and women who have been absolutely transformed by the, the gospel of grace. Think of John Newton, remember the author of that great hymn, uh, Amazing Grace, who was a slave trader before he became a Christian. Now today, in our culture, if there is one unforgivable sin, it is what? It is racism. Okay? It is a heinous sin, terrible and disgusting. Hate racism. But in today's culture, that's the unforgivable sin. If you tweet something even five years ago, forget about getting a job. If you're branded as a racist, it's unforgivable in our culture. Jesus can forgive racism, forgave John Newton. Yeah? Remember Carla Faye Tucker, the axe murderer from Texas? She was the first woman who was executed in Texas in a hundred years. She was an axe murderer, and in prison, she was profoundly converted to Christ. Glorious story of redemption. Remember a guy called Jeffrey Dahmer, the cannibal? Professed faith in prison as well. 
And so verse 28 is absolutely comforting to repentant sinners. You can bring to him anything, and he has plenty of grace to forgive it. Okay, so that's the word of comfort in verse 28. But now we get to the heart of our difficulty here, verse 29. But, he says, whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now that's kind of problematic because he just said in the previous verse 28 that whatever blasphemies they utter can be forgiven, but now he's telling us that there's a certain kind of blasphemy that can't. What's the difference? Well, if we look carefully at verse 29, it says, whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit, now that would seem to be a different kind of blasphemy from whatever's described in verse 28. Uh, this one is specifically mentioned to be against the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a very interesting parallel passage in Matthew, uh, Matthew's gospel. If you'd flip over with me to Matthew 12 for just a moment, uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 32, it says something really curious here. And perhaps this will help us to unravel the difficulty of why this sin seems to be unforgivable. Matthew's Gospel, 1232, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Now that's interesting, truly. Because Jesus just said that you can blaspheme him, Christ, the Messiah, and it can be forgiven. But if we blaspheme the Holy Spirit, it can't. Why not? What in the world is happening here? You see the difficulty of this text? Well, maybe what we need to do here is just pause and do a little bit of remedial work on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Who is he? And what does he do? First of all, he is a who. He is the Holy Spirit. He is the personal spirit. He's not a vague force. Okay, this isn't Star Wars we're talking about here. The Holy Spirit is a person. In fact, he is the third person of the Trinity. Not third in terms of rank, as though he's lower. Third in terms of him being revealed throughout the history of redemption. The Father is primarily revealed in the Old Testament. Christ is revealed in the Incarnation. The Spirit of God is revealed most manifestly. He's elsewhere, but most manifestly revealed after the day of Pentecost. That's why we call him the third person of the Trinity. But understand this. Uh, the Holy Spirit is equally glorious, great, and worthy of praise, as is the Father and the Son. That's not the difference here in regard to the blasphemy. I think that the real difference has to do with the work of the Holy Spirit. What does he do in our redemption? What does he do? Well, the Spirit is the one in the economy of the Trinity whose work is to draw us to Christ. His work is to turn us to grace. His monergistic, gracious work is to bring us into relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, which is why when you look at what the Spirit of God is doing in the Gospels, the Spirit is always doing what? He's pointing to Jesus. Remember the baptism of Jesus a couple of chapters ago when Jesus is baptized in the water? What is the Spirit of God doing? He's descending on him like a dove, Right? He's pointing to Christ. The Spirit's great work is to point to Christ and say, here is a redeemer. Here is grace. Here is redemption brought to you in God's Son, the person of God's Son. And that's exactly what we read elsewhere. When we, if we'd had time this morning, we could go to John's Gospel and we could see what the Spirit of God does. In John chapter 3, it's the Spirit who causes us to be born again. 
Yeah? It's the Spirit of God, John 14 and John 16, who convicts us of sin, who reminds us of the words of Christ, who graciously draws us into relationship with our Father. And so we might say it this way, that the Holy Spirit is that very lifeline who brings us into a saving knowledge and relationship with Christ and then keeps us there, safe and secure. And so the reason why blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is so damnable, to use the word technically, is because it would be like us cutting off the very branch of hope on which we're sitting. If you blaspheme the Spirit, you are shutting down, you are denying, you are repudiating the work of the very one whose mission is to draw you into relationship of saving grace with with Christ. You see that? Imagine, if you will, here's a visual picture for you. You've probably seen this on TV. Have you ever seen a a situation in which a like a rescue chopper flies in and a hero fast ropes down to somebody who's stranded maybe on a cliff or in the water or something like that. And, and what do they do? They, they snatch up that person, okay? It's completely the, the saving work of, of the heroes up above. And imagine that helicopter lifting this person up and rescuing them to safety. But, but suppose, suppose the very person being rescued took out a utility knife and cut off the very rope that was leading them into grace. Okay. That's a picture or an analogy of what it looks like to blaspheme the Spirit because we're shutting down, closing ourselves off, shutting the heart from the Spirit's work of, of redeeming, drawing us, pointing to Christ. Does that make sense? Does that kind of make sense? Now, I want to touch on the, uh, the actual situation that's taking place here because the context, as we've already mentioned, is that Jesus is, is casting out demons and they're saying that he's doing it by the prince of demons. And I've heard some people express it like this, that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is being skeptical of God's miraculous power or skeptical of God's supernatural power. Now, I'd be careful phrasing it like that. And the reason is because God's people are actually called to be discerning when it comes to the supernatural forces, aren't we? Like, go all the way back to the book of Exodus. You remember Moses and those great works of deliverance? Don't forget that Pharaoh's magicians could do some of those things too. So we're not just to shut off our discernment mechanism in our brains because we see something that appears to be supernatural. The first John 4 tells us that we're to test the spirits. Even 2 Corinthians tells us that Satan himself can fool us looking like an angel of light. So this passage is not telling us to just mentally check out and believe anything that looks like it's being supernatural. That's not the point. The problem with blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is that we are shutting down his drawing, pointing work to the Messiah, the Redeemer. So now I'm going to define it in the best words that I can as as your pastor, okay? Here's my definition of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to say it twice just so I can be as clear as I, I hope to be in this, in this message. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the souls, and you have a soul, okay? So do I. Cold, dark, 
and final repudiation of the gospel, such that a man entirely rejects, shuts down, and despises the gracious witness of the Holy Spirit by utterly scorning the Son of God and attributing his power and works to the devil. Okay, I'm going to do that again, nice and slow. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the soul's cold, dark, and final repudiation of the gospel such that a man entirely rejects, shuts down, and despises the gracious witness of the Holy Spirit by utterly scorning the Son of God in attributing his power and works to the devil. That's the best I can do. I hope that's helpful. Okay? It's the best I can do. Now let's move on to the third point, the callous conclusion that is arrived at here in this text. Verse 30. For they were saying he, Christ, has an unclean spirit. Okay. So the word for in this passage functions to draw a conclusion from what has just been said. In other words, what we see in verse 30 is directly related to verse 29. For they were saying, now notice, the, notice even the tense of the phrase, we're saying here. Okay, that's a past tense, but it's a repeated past tense over and over. Not just like once, not like, oops, they made a mistake one time. It's not like they were just inarticulate or they, they messed up or they just, you know, interpreted this whole scenario wrong. They were saying, this was their determined and decided conclusion. He, Christ, is wicked and we need not him. And this, I think, is what Hebrews chapter 6 is referring to. Pastor David's teaching a wonderful class on Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, is likewise one of the hardest passages to, to, to interpret in the Bible, okay? Because we don't like to hear about anything being unforgivable. All, all that we know about God and his graciousness points us in the direction of thinking that, that everything should be forgivable. But, but here, we're finding out that there's something that's not. But this is the reason that it's not forgivable, because it, because it doesn't drive to Repentance. In fact, it runs from repentance. Listen to the words of Hebrews 6, 4-6. For it is impossible, impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So it's something like this. Their final conclusion was Jesus is evil. He does the works of Satan. Okay, what we know to be the most loving man on planet earth, they are calling him evil. The one who has come to free us from our sin and from our guilt and from our, our shame and from the powers of Satan, they are calling the power of Satan. Okay? To the one who died, they are saying good riddance. To the one who shed his blood, they are saying spill more. We don't care. And ultimately, decisively, and finally, they rejected Christ. This is the damnable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And so let me, let me if I can, divide us up into three groups this morning and just make a word of application to whatever group you may find yourself in. Let's, let's call a group here 
those who are not Christians and they know it. You're not a Christian, you know it. I don't know it, but you know it. What I would say to you if you are in that group is reconsider Christ before it is too late. Reconsider him before it is too late. Consider his love. Can you find anything greater than Christ elsewhere? Are you going to find a more merciful God than he who is offered in Christ, the second person of the Trinity? Can you find something greater than his healing, his kindness? There is a point of no return, and that's where this gets a little bit scary. Now think about it this way. You know, um, imagine an airplane on a runway, right? It's taken off, it's gathering speed. At some point, and I'm not a pilot, never flown a plane, but I'm told that at some point there's this point of no return on the, on, on the runway in which you either have to gun it and go in the air or slam on the brakes and stop. Because you get to this point where if, if you keep going but you don't do either, you definitely crash. It's the point of no return. And if you're not a Christian and you know it today, all I would simply say to you is reconsider Jesus Christ as he is offered in the gospel. Be careful that you don't get to the point of no return. I don't know what that point is. But apparently there is one. Apparently there is one. Second group of people, if you're not sure. Maybe today you're thinking like, you know, I, I think I'm a Christian. I hope I'm a Christian. Maybe I'm considering Christ. Maybe one day I will be a Christian. If that is you, you just don't even, you're just, all these things are confusing. You're not even sure where you're at. I would say to you this, ask that spirit to draw you further in. Do not shut him down, but ask him. Help me, lead me, guide me. Take me into you, draw me closer to your very heart. Help me, I wanna know, I wanna be sure. I wanna be sure which group I'm in. I don't know which group I'm in, I wanna be sure though. So, Spirit of God, do your work and draw me close. Final group. You are Christians and you know it. You love him and so do I. If that's you today, I do not want you to be worried about this text or to have anxiety that possibly you might have committed this sin because as has been said so many times by other people before, if you are worried that you might have committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, you probably haven't, okay? If you love Jesus and he is yours and you are his and you've confessed your sin to him, do not let this passage terrify you. You go back to verse 28 and remind yourself that all sins can be forgiven the children of man. And whenever you find yourself sinning, you just bring it right to Jesus. You ask him for forgiveness for another day. Let's pray. Father God, if there's any way that I stated something inarticulately today or was unclear, Father, I pray that your spirit would do the work that I, that I cannot. Lord, for those who are not Christians today, I pray, God, that you would work a saving work of grace. The Apostle Paul hated Jesus before Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and saved him. And that is true for so many of us, Lord. We thought we were on one path and all of a sudden you showed up and saved us and you put us on another, another journey completely in the opposite direction. Please do that for some here today.
Lord, for those who are not sure where they're at in their faith, I pray, God, that you would convince them, convict them, give them assurance of grace that the next time that we gather, they can say for sure that they are part of the body of Christ, redeemed and sanctified to his glory. And Lord, for those of us who love you and we know it and, and, and you've known us for years and we desire you more than anything else, Lord, continue to point us to the cross where our Savior died for us and to the empty tomb where he was raised from the dead and set our eyes above to things above where he is seated right now with you in glory. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, let's stand together. We're going to sing our final hymn. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.